Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's February the 11th, 2022. Time waits for nobody, as I think David Bowie famously said. And it certainly doesn't wait for me. I'm a bit late on this one. I pride myself on this show in getting authors when their books come out. And I like to be first. We all like to be first because after a while, if you're not first, you're last and irrelevant. And on this particular interview, I fear I'm right at the back of the queue. There's this wonderful new book that came out. I think it came out in September in the US and October in the UK. People Love Dead Jews by Dara Horn. Um, got tremendous press. Uh, it was uh, a Kirkus Best Books of 2021, a, a prize finalist. It was loved by the New York Times, of course. I'm sure it was a New York Times bestseller. Dara was already a, a well-known novelist, highly respected academic as well, but she's gone on to become internationally famous. She gives interviews to newspapers like the Times of Israel. She's given hundreds of interviews. I've been spending the whole morning looking at Dara's interviews on the internet. So she's very familiar to me, even though we've just met. She even has her own podcast called Adventures with Dead Jews, which uh, I listened to a little bit, which was very entertaining, very uh, Dara Hornish. Um, so the real question is, what am I going to talk to Dara about? She's already spilt her guts on this book. Uh, but I, I noted a really interesting uh, interview that she gave to uh, uh, Hararetz, the uh, Israeli newspaper. Uh, the book has been a huge hit, and Dara is sorry about that. I mean, of course, she isn't really sorry. I'm sure she's thrilled that the book is doing so well. But there's a kind of sorrow about the success of the book, which is rooted in the book itself. So this conversation is a kind of afterlife of the book. I don't know if the book is dead, Dara, but it's coming back to life or it has a series of lives. Why are you sorry that the book uh, People Love Dead Jews is doing so well? Um, because it turns out I was right. Which is extremely depressing to realize. Um, you know, I mean, it's always nice as a writer to have people who appreciate your work. But with this book, it's like I kind of wish I had liked this. I, I kind of pe wish people liked the book a little less, because what I found is this is like extremely resonant with a lot of people um, from a lot of different backgrounds, and that's you know, and I've sort of been you know inundated with mail from readers um, from many different backgrounds, and what I've sort of discovered is that for me. Uh, writing this book was sort of, it was an intellectual exploration for me. But what I found is for a lot of my readers, it was, it's very resonant with emotional, you know, personal and emotional experiences. And that's sort of been extremely disturbing to realize. And I've sort of since become sort of the receptacle for a lot of my, um, you know, a lot of my readers' uh, feelings. The subtitle of the book has, obviously, the, the title is brilliant. I, I saw in an interview, I heard an interview, you got lucky with your editor. They must have missed that one because... Publishers are very conservative. They're very fearful of, of bomb-like uh, titles. And this is certainly a bomb. People love dead Jews. But the subtitle is equally intriguing. Reports from a haunted present. What is so haunted about our present, Dara? How did you get that right? At least when it comes to the Jews. Yeah, well, so the title is 
you know, I mean, yes, the title is intended to make people uncomfortable. That's entirely intentional on my part. Jews or uh, non-Jews or both? Uh, everyone. <laughs> everyone. Um, because, you know, for me, as my, you know, in 20 years of being a writer, what I've discovered is that the uncomfortable moments are where the story is. Um, and everything, and I spent 20 years not writing this book, and then, you know, finally sort of gave into that discomfort and sort of pursued it um, to the bitter end. And, um, you know, it's funny that you say like, oh, I got lucky with my publisher wanting, you know, being okay with this title. Um, for the podcast, which you mentioned, um, Adventures with Dead Jews, the, the production team and I were always joking about making swag. Like, you know, tote bags, coffee mugs, right? Yeah, well, you sold me on it. I mean, just... Who doesn't want to read a book called People Love Dead Jews? Um, I mean, I mean, not that I love dead Jews, but um, I mean, I, I prefer alive ones like you and myself. But um, it is a wonderful title. How, how do you actually come up with the title? Was it yours or the publisher's? Oh, no, it's oh, it's mine. So and I realize I evaded your question about the haunted present, but perhaps I, I will come to well, that we in, can, in describing uh, how I started yeah, to write the book. Maybe yeah. deal with that first and then explain how you came up with the title. Yes. Well, so the haunted present is sort of the way that it's so the book is really sort of about the sort of the way people use uh, the Jewish past and specifically sort of past Jewish suffering and the way that it and so and the basic the premise of the book is that people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. And those what kind of people, um, Dara? Well, I mean, it's uh, really everyone. Um, although really the book is focused on the role that dead Jews play in the like larger non-Jewish world's imagination. So that's a lot of, and, and this goes to um, things like Holocaust memorialization, but it's also far beyond that. I have um, chapters of the book that are about, um, you know, anti-Semitic attacks in the United States. I have chapters in the book that I'm at, uh, that are about, I, I travel around the world. Um, I went to China. Um, I look at like Jewish, what's called Jewish heritage sites around the world. Um, I talk about um, sort of various like mythologies that persist in Jewish communities about their past, um, even though they've been proven false. Um, so I'm sort of exploring this from lots of different angles. And so when I say the haunted present, it's about the way the past lives in the present, even when we don't want it to, and also the ways that we sometimes um, use or abuse that past. Lots so of literature, like Dara, these days about anti-Semitism, lots of events, synagogue shootings, and so on and so forth. Are you perhaps suggesting in the book that people, quote unquote, particularly non-Jews, those people who love dead Jews, that this mythologizing of the dead Jew, this schlocking of Holocaust memorials and mass killings, that it's a form of anti-Semitism? That's exactly what I'm suggesting. Um, and the reason I'm suggesting it, and, and it's, it's that what I'm basically saying is that this sort of um, obsession with past Jewish suffering is a kind of even in its what I the way I put it in the book is that even in its most benign and civic minded forms is a profound affront to human dignity because you're using Jews as a symbol, um, and there is there is something contiguous about using Jews as a symbol to erasing actual humans. So and and I, there is a very clear overlap that and that's it's in that overlap that the book um, that the book's argument lives in many different contexts. And what about the title? How'd you come up with yeah. it? Um, so Were you in I the mean, bath in the shower. No, no. Um, it's, you know, this, I, 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 as I mentioned, I spent 20 years not writing this book. 
And what I mean by that is I published five novels prior to this book. They all deal with Jewish um, history, belief, culture. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so, uh, and and I also have a doctorate in Yiddish and Hebrew literature. So, like, I am, like, deep into the, you know, world of, you know, Jewish stories. And what I always did in all of my books was, uh, uh, was always pushing back against the idea that Jewish culture was defined by what the world had done to the Jews. Um, that was always sort of, I always wanted this to be this autonomous uh, story, um, so much so that I would do public events about my books and I would ask the audience, like, how many people here can name three concentration camps? That's something a lot of readers can do. I would then ask those same readers, how many people here can name three Yiddish writers? Because 80% of the people murdered in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. Why do we care about how these people died if we don't care how they lived? So this was always sort of what I was pushing my work toward was like this story that was about the development of Jewish culture from within. I started to realize how naive I was in 2018 when I was approached by an editor from Smithsonian Magazine who asked me to write an essay for them about Anne Frank. And I got Wait. that. Yeah. yeah. The, the infamous Anne Frank, the ubiquitous Anne Frank. Oh you can't yeah, escape yeah. the women these days, can you? Yes, yes. Don't even get me. I mean, you could get me started. And that's, yes. Um, so Is she even more annoying than Mother Teresa? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a reason why you're comparing her to Mother Teresa. Or, or the other one who comes to mind is Anthony Bourdain. They, they seem yeah. to have become sort of generic symbols of goodness for some reason. I mean, well, but it's not for some reason. It's an exploitation of a, of, of a, a dead Jew to offer you absolution from your sins. And if that's well, she was good because she was this cute, optimistic little girl who got murdered by the evil Germans. And, but she never gave up her goodness, right? Well, this is this is this line, okay? So it, you know, the the reason this is so popular, she has this line in this diary that says, "I still believe, in spite of everything, that people are truly good at heart." And so, you know, you read that line, and as I put it in the book, like we read that line, and it inspires us, by which we mean it flatters us, right? Because what we're basically saying is that, you know, that there's it's as if this, you know, this murdered Jewish girl has offered us grace, right? Like, and so if a murdered girl uh, us as humanity, us as us yes, as a species, yes, exactly. that however I mean, terrible an experience she had, she could still believe. But this is absurd. Uh, we were good. Yes, okay, but it's a lie. And the reason it's a lie is because she didn't write this line to offer everybody grace. And this the reality is so much simpler. Anne Frank wrote that line about people being good at heart. Three weeks before she met people who weren't. Yeah. And that's the part that's not in the book. So who should we be remembering? If we're not remembering Anne Frank, give me some examples of people who are less well-known, uh, yeah. Sarah, who, who perhaps speak more honestly, better yeah. versions of dead Jews. Yeah, so in the essay, and I, I didn't even get to why, how I came up with the title, but that's okay. Oh, yeah, we'll get to that. Don't worry, yeah. I'm not going to let you get away with that one. Yeah, so um, the... So in the in the essay in the book that I where I talk about Anne Frank, I compare her with another writer. It was a very similar situation. It was a you know a Jewish person who was murdered in the Holocaust, whose diary was discovered after their death. Very similar story, except the difference is this is a writer named Zalman Grudowski. It's writing in Yiddish. He's writing his diary first of all in Yiddish. Second of all, he's writing his diary at Auschwitz, where he was part of what the Nazis called the Zonderkommando. His, he was a Jewish prisoner in Auschwitz, where his job was to escort other Jewish prisoners into the gas chambers. So and he was like the, the character in Son of Saul, the movie. Yeah, 
Yes. Actually, Son of Saul is based on his memoir. Right. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing film, I think. Yes. So this is, you know, and he writes about this and he writes about you know, burning these people's bodies. And he writes about this experience. And you know what? There doesn't, there's no line in his diary about this where he talks about people being truly good at heart. That's not what he says. And he also doesn't like gaze into this inferno and wonder why. Like he knows. He says, you know, these fires were started by the barbarians of the world who sought to expel darkness from their own lives with its light. Right? Like the the reason it's not like this like mystery of like why this is happening. This isn't like some theological conundrum, right? This is like but, 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 but evil but evil, uh, Dara is a theological conundrum. But not really. It, it's a political problem, right? I mean, that's actually one of the things I write about in the book, too, is the example of Elie Wiesel. Um, you know, Elie Wiesel's memoir, Night, is probably like, you know, another one of these books. Well, like that's it. another annoying one, isn't it? Well, okay, so here's what I find, you know, annoying. maybe I wouldn't use the word annoying, but like what's a little bit um, misleading about that book is that um, Elie Wiesel originally wrote that book in Yiddish. Um, he published it in Yiddish, and the Yiddish version is called And the World Was Silent. And it's the same story, but it is it just explodes with rage at the nations of the world that allowed this to happen. Yeah. It was political anger. And what happened was he when he was in France, he became friends with the um, French Catholic Nobel laureate Francois Mauriac, mm. who he was and Francois Mauriac was helping him adapt this memoir into French. And at some point he realized like you know, if I'm going to write this book in French in the 1950s, like who wants to read, like what, what non-Jewish French reader is going to want to read about how their society failed and how they're responsible. Better to blame God. We could all get behind that. Right. So, you know, it is, so what he does is he repositions this political anger, which is entirely appropriate into something more palatable to a non-Jewish audience, which is like theological angst. So suddenly, instead of where were these nations of the world, which by the way, you people elected, it's where was God? Like I right. said, particularly in the United States, and we, you know we've done shows on Churchill, on FDR. All their all their legacies are stained, tainted, some more than others. But nobody gets away with this scot free. So you talked sure. about the the title of the Ellie Wiesel book. Let's come back to your title. How'd yeah. you come up with it? Okay, so um, as I mentioned, I was uh, Smithsonian Magazine asked me to write this piece about Anne Frank, and uh, and I just I you know I, I got that request, and I just felt overwhelmed with dread because I thought like, wow, I really, really don't want to write an essay about Anne Frank. <laughs> and, you know, which, you know, the normal thing to do would be like, turn down this assignment. But, you know, I'm a writer, so I'm not like a... And it's person. it's the Smithsonian. That's not chopped liver, is it? Yes, right. right excellent magazine. And I, I had never written for them before. Um, and I just thought, you know, this is interesting. Why don't I want to do this? Right. And so I thought, you know, there's some like what what and this is when I remember this something that's been true for my whole life as a writer, which is, as I mentioned earlier, the uncomfortable moments are where the story is, because when you go toward those uncomfortable moments is when you're about to learn something. So I thought, OK, this is interesting. Why don't I want to write about this? And that's when I remembered a news story that I had read about something that had happened at the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam. So this is a museum where, you know, Anne Frank and her family and other persecuted Jews were hiding from the Nazis in these like tiny- And it's you know, a very, very nice museum, right yeah. on the canal, right in downtown, full of tourists. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, and it's, I mean, as it's for tourists, as you say, it's an internationally, you know, popular museum. They get, you know, two million. You get to feel like Anne Frank for half an hour, right? Yes, right. I mean, it's, yes. And so, you know, it's two million visitors a year. The news item I had seen in 2018 was about a young Jewish man who was working at this museum. And the museum would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work. That's this, you know, small skull cap that religious Jewish men often wear. They would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. He then appealed this decision to the board of the museum and the board of the museum then deliberated for four months and then finally relented and let this young man wear his yarmulke to work. So I had read this news story and I thought, you know, four months, that's a really long time for the Anne Frank Museum to ponder whether or not it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. Would you have had the same reaction if, and then I know you would say yes, if it had been a, a Muslim girl in a veil at the museum? I mean, this is part of a broader debate. It's not just a Jewish thing, right? Well, is it or isn't it? Because then well, it, I, is in, it is in Europe. It certainly is in France and, and yes, Holland. Yeah, so there is this like laicite thing. Okay, except then I was like remembering this story, but like, honestly, the Anne Frank Museum? Really? And then I'm thinking, like, like literally, like, this is very on brand for them to, like, force a Jew into hiding. Then I noticed, um, I was like, did I dream this story? This can't possibly be true. I went and looked it up again, and I found a very similar story of something equally crazy that had happened a few months earlier at the same museum. As you mentioned, it's a big international tourist destination. They have audio guides for, in about, I don't know, 15 languages. Um, and it's the same audio guide you see at any international museum where it says, like, you know, English and there's a little British flag and then it says Francais and there's a little French flag until you get to Hebrew. Hebrew, no flag, no flag. And I, when I saw that, I thought, you know, well, but that's also Dara. That's you know, yeah, I take your point, but that's also bound up in politics and Israel and Europe. Well, you can gaslight your way out of it, sure, for sure. You can gaslight your way out of all of these things, and that's what do you mean, I mean, gaslight. What I mean is that you can set up a plausible deniability for what you're doing for any of these things. You know, the same way that like there was a, when there was this um, hostage taking at a synagogue in Texas last month and the FBI comes out and says, this was not an anti-Semitic incident. Like, yeah, you know, it's just like a school shooting. It's like, well, no, because yeah. it's not on a plane. And you've, and uh, you know, there's Brett Stevens who's been on the show, lots of comments on this about, Pittsburgh, um, Pittsburgh singer, the rising tide of anti-Semitism. Um, there was an interesting piece from, I'm sure you saw it from Deborah Lipstadt uh, yeah. from last month about even for Jews in America, going to services is an act of courage. I'm not entirely sure that's true, but I take her point. So, um, Dara, well, this your critique, sorry, go on. What, what, yeah. Do you agree with Deborah on that? Um, I mean, Yes. Act of courage, meaning? Meaning like there. this is not this. I mean, that that was what was sort of most telling about this reaction in the Texas uh, hostage taking in Colleyville, Texas, was um, I wrote a piece about this for the Washington Post. Yeah, um, I have it. So I, I, got it yeah, I, actually, I wrote about yeah. how, you know, there was um, there was a reporter, I think it was from the Times of Israel. There was a reporter who walked around that whole neighborhood and interviewed all these you know non-Jewish neighbors who lived in this area. And they all were like completely convinced that this was just like a random act of violence. And, you know, their church down the street was just as much at risk. And I was sort of like, 
this is this like ritual we do of plausible deniability where we're like pretending that what's happening is not what's happening. So, you know, with this Anne Frank Museum examples, um, you know, I looked at these pieces and I was like, these are PR, you know, these two incidents. Um, and I said, you know, these are PR mishaps, but they are not mistakes. And so when I wrote this piece, I did write the piece for Smithsonian. And the opening line of my piece for Smithsonian was, people love dead Jews. Living Jews, not so much. Right, yeah. because that's exactly what the museum and you know they're you know the reason that there there's this erasure of living Jews that has to happen in order to tell this like feel good story about dead Jews. So I take um, your point about the saccharine and annoying commercial nature of Holocaust memorials. You have a section on it on Harbin. Actually, one of my relatives is from Harbin. Oh, really? But on the other hand, I mean, some of these. Are, I mean, I've been to Yad Vashem several times. I mean, uh, there's. Uh, Going to Auschwitz near Krakow in Poland, there's the uh, Museum of Jewish Heritage, the uh, the Holocaust stuff in D.C. I mean, some of it can be done right. Now, you're not suggesting we shut these places down, are you? No, no, no. But what I'm suggesting is there's a few different. Well, there's a few different ways this goes, right? So I mean, there's this thing that was doing that was happening in the Anne Frank Museum in Europe, where it really was this um, effort to erase living Jews, right? I mean, that's really what was happening. Um, and, you know, because they ruined the story, right? And so what you see, though, in the, when I- so you I mean that uh, the Anne Frank had to die to be interesting, otherwise we wouldn't be in her well, home. They're erasing, like, living, right? They're like, oh, our mission as a museum is to teach people about the Jews' humanity. The humanity of, like, the nice Jews, right? Like, the dead ones, not the living ones who are doing, you know, yucky things, like- living in Israel. Or and, and is it particularly Israel? ironic that there's been this row about this book about Anne Frank, about her betrayal by another Jew, which only adds to your argument, really? Oh, yeah. No, I said this in the interview with Haaretz. I was like, you know, it's like achievement unlocked, right? Like, hooray, the, the goal of the dream was achieved. They finally figured out a way to make the Holocaust the Jews' fault. But on the other hand, uh, I, I take your point, but on the other hand, it also reflects the truth. The truth of Jews is that they were angelic girls like uh, Anne Frank and bad Jews like everybody else. Well, I mean, it's absurd. It's completely absurd because like the whole idea that like this is a cold case, like it's not a mystery who murdered Anne Frank. That's not the mystery, but that wasn't the point of the book. But that kind of was the point of the book. Because like, why do we care? Right, number one. Number two, it turned out not to be true. Right, I mean, they pulled the book. Yeah. Like, the only reason that that book had any kind of play was because it was like, ooh, it was a Jew who betrayed her. Right? It's like, you know, let's find well, some. As you know, like, Jews sell books. Yeah. That's why people love dead Jews. Is yes, one of the reasons why it's doing Exactly. <laughs> but it's a story that you're telling that makes you feel better about yourself. So, to go to your point you raised earlier about Holocaust museums, um, you know, and I write about this in the book is that, you know, a lot of these, you know, I, I write about sort of this thing that was, you know, when in the 1990s, when a lot of these museums and memorials in the United States were opening, um, that was sort of when you started having like, you know, Holocaust education in schools. And, you know, I write about, and a lot of those efforts were, you know, really, you know, created by uh, the Jewish community. And the idea was this, you know, that, that Holocaust education was going to prevent anti-Semitism, right? Like that was sort of the original premise was like, people would like go to these museums or they'd learn about this in school. They'd learn about where hatred could lead. They learn, They'd learn like, you know, what the world did to the Jews and they would then stop hating Jews. And, you know, the, the problem is like, you know, in the 30 years since these museums opened, like 
you know, like anti-Semitic incidents and things like that are much like the all the levels of those things are much higher now than they were in you know 1995. But it's and not. So, but you don't just go to these places to learn. You go to, I don't know, pay your respects or understand what happened. I remember when I went to Auschwitz, I got on the bus in Krakow. And the uh, the tour guy, it wasn't really a tour guy, but the driver said, here's the bus to Auschwitz. And it's hard, it's hard to contextualize the seriousness of this experience. For me, going to Auschwitz was an enormously meaningful experience because I think the display of the shoes and the hair brought into context the depths of the depravity and the number of people killed. That not that a good experience? Well, so, I mean, I had that experience too. I was there as a teenager. Um, and yes, absolutely. But I think that what the problem is, you know, what's sort of like, yes, it's important for people to learn about the Holocaust so that they don't repeat it. But the problem with that is that then, you know, I mentioned before this idea of the book, which is people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. Holocaust education is one of those stories because, you know, you go to a Holocaust museum and like, you know, you feel like hopefully terrible about what happened, but you feel good about yourself because you're like, I would never do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah, you probably wouldn't, but like, that's kind of a low bar to clear. But uh, for non-Jews going to these things, you want to make them all feel guilty that they were somehow involved in this? Well, it's not, it's not about like feeling guilty of whether you're Jewish or non-Jewish. I mean, it's about sort of like, what are we, what are, what is the idea here? It's sort of, because what I've noticed is like, now there's this, dynamic going on where Holocaust education is the only way people are taught about anti-Semitism. And the problem with that is that that means that people now feel like what like anti-Semitism is, is that anti-Semitism consists of murdering 6 million Jews. Like that's kind of a ridiculous standard. And I, and that's clearly what it is because what you see is that we also now have this public ritual where anytime there's some public figure who says something like vaguely anti-Semitic, there's this public ritual where like we have to drag them to a Holocaust museum and then they have to like give some statement. Yeah, about I, I take your point. And, uh, maybe you can help me with this. And uh, I can't figure it out. At the beginning of Yad Vashem, there is, a, I'm convinced of it, a quote by Aaron Applefell about the amount of communities that were destroyed during the Holocaust. It's a description of what was lost. Does that ring a bell with you? But I think um, your point is that in terms of remembering what happened, we need to remind ourselves of what was destroyed rather than just this obsession with good and evil. Yes, exactly. So that's because that's part of the dehumanization. Um, so the problem is like, you know, the Nazi project was not just about murdering 6 million Jews. It was also about destroying Jewish civilization. Right, wiping it out completely. Erasing Jewish civilization. So why are we participating in that by also erasing that civilization in the way we present this. Um, I mentioned earlier that 80% of the people murdered in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. Yeah. Why are like the most popular texts we're reading things like Anne Frank that's written in Dutch? Like why, are, and then also like, this is another thing that I've noticed is that there's this push in these, um, you know, in the way we educate people about the Holocaust. And this I feel is a flaw in the way we teach about anti-bigotry education in the United States. Um, which is that we take this tactic where it's like to gain people's empathy, we have to be like, look, these people who are murdered were just like you and me. They were just yeah. like- Yeah, and, and, and it comes out in the broader context of Second World War II. We had a, a Churchill show recently. Um, 
as this idea, you know, it's the war in the East that was the critical part of the war, not the war in the West. And as you say, it was the Jews in the East, the uh, Yiddish speakers who were mostly killed, but we no, forget no, about no, them no, and we no, remember uh, yeah. Frank because she seems more Western. Um, uh, Dara, I had, I, I'm sure you know her, she's probably a friend of yours, Ju- Judy Battalion on the yes, show recently, <laughs> who wrote a book about female resistance to the Nazis. Um, it's a wonderful book. It's done like yours. It's done very well. And like you, I think she studied in England, came back, was rather frustrated there. Um, she writes about agency, of course. That's the heart of her book. Yes. That's really the heart of your argument too, agency. Yes. Re- re-establishing, re- making agency the key to all this. Yes, right, because it is this, you know, as I, you know, there, one of the messages in my book is also is that like this story, that feel-good story about dead Jews requires the erasure of actual Jews right whether it's people living now right or or whether it's you know even the culture that was destroying the holocaust um right in judy's book which is fantastic and yes we are yeah it would be good to actually get you both on the show together it'd be really interesting fantastic so the thing about judy and uh judy and i is that we both we both understand yiddish and so we both like have this like deep understanding of the culture that was really destroyed in the holocaust um, and that's something that is like, you know, it's not just, it's not even that it's inaccessible because a lot of that material is available in translation. It's that there's a lack of interest, right? It really is a lack of interest. Like we would rather tell this story about like, look at this children who are just like you and me. And it's like, well, the problem with that is that like, you know, like I said, 80% of the people who were murdered were Yiddish speakers. A huge number of them were Hasidic Jews. Right? Like, would that change your attitude about, like, wh- whether we should be empathetic? They probably would have been Trump voters, too, if they could have voted, right? I mean, I don't know. But, like, I mean, that's, that's you know, mapping a lot of different things on different... But the point is that, like, what's, <laughs> you know, the, the interesting piece to me here is that this idea, the, the fatal flaw in the way we are thinking about, you know, anti-bigotry education or diversity in, the, certainly in the United States, is, like, this idea that like, oh, the way we teach people not to be bigoted is to say like, oh, look at this group of people over here that you might be prejudiced against. You shouldn't hate those people because, you know, they're just like everybody else. That itself is erasing the identity of this group, you know, and that to me is like, that's a fatal flaw in, in, in the way you think about that, because especially in the case of Jewish civilization, because, I mean, Jews spent 3000 years not being like everyone else. That was sort of the purpose of Judaism. Like Judaism's brand is. Yeah, well, and there's a whole show to do, uh, Dara. I don't want to get to it now because we've got to end about whether or not we do or don't want Jews to be like everyone else, especially in America. You wrote a book about what Americans owe Jews just as what Jews owe America. It's a very interesting conversation. Certainly what's clear from this conversation is I don't know about dead Jews, but Dara's book, People Love Dead Jews, is certainly not dead. And uh, Dara Horn is anything but dead, one of the most... um, uh, interesting, articulate, and outspoken figures we've had on the shows. Dara, real honor to have you on. Congratulations on your amazing success. Uh, what else should people be reading in February 22, in addition to People Love Dead Jews? What other books are on your mind? Um, well, so if there, you know, further exploration of this unfortunately relevant topic, um, I recently uh, did an event with the British uh, Jewish comedian David Bedil. Um, he has yeah, a book. Chelsea called- fan. Yes, yeah, yeah, he has a book called Jews Don't Count, um, which came out uh, was a while ago in the UK, but it's recently available in the US, um, which is very much about um, Jew, um, anti. It was basically about anti-Semitism um, on the left, 
Do you think, uh, in terms of Badil, Dara, um, there's a big debate in England. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. The rival oh, club to Badil's club is uh, Tottenham, and uh, and we use uh, the Yid Army term to describe our supporters. Badil is not comfortable with that. Are you allowing it? Is that okay with you? No. Why would that be okay? And that's what he says. Because says it's irony. Play. It's the use of agency. It's making yeah, it's fun of anti-Semites. Well, so, I mean, again, I'm speaking for him. You should you know, speak to him yeah, about we'll this. We'll have to get him on the show, in too. Book, in his book, he has um, a passage where he talks about being at one of these football matches um, with the people doing this cheer for, like, the Yids. Or, and then yeah, it's but like... we are the Yids. That, it's no, a Jewish it's club. Not, because it's not, and it's not ironic. If there's, he unpacks it much better than I could as a... Yeah, because he's not a Spurs fan, and I am, and we use it ironically. It's not for him to say. Anyway, no, apart from Gadeo, who else is there? Yeah, well, so I would I would encourage you to speak with him on this show too. I will. I, You'll have to introduce me. We'll have him on. Although I haven't, don't normally like Chelsea fans. But anyway, go on. Um, yeah, so that that's a very interesting book. Um, you know, and I, you know, I there's a few books. I talk at the end of the book about um, embarking on this project of reading the Talmud one page a day, mm. um, and that's sort of you know something that I take on at the end of the book, um, sort of as a deep dive into like the real content of Jewish culture. Um, there are two great memoirs that are both like very accessible and by terrific writers about this sort of encountering the Talmud as a non-traditional person. Um, one is um, uh, by a woman named Iwana Kershawn. It's called If All the Seas Were Ink. And it's yeah. sort of like walking you through this seven year process of reading through the Talmud, but like she, you know, applying it to her own life and sort of like, it's just beautifully, and she attaches it to like English poetry and it's a beautifully written book. Um, the literary critic, Adam Kirsch, um, also just published a book about this. Um, it's called Come and Hear. And it's also about this sort of like taking as an as a non-religious person, taking this like seven year journey through studying this text that's really just unlike anything anyone's ever read. So those are a few things that I was uh, reading recently. Well, there's a good stuff. Uh, the last two, uh, certainly, uh, maybe we can get Badil on the show. Dara Horn, author of People Love Dead Jews. Uh, you're as good a person as you are on the page. Just as outspoken as articulate, people need to read the book. And I'm thrilled that you came on the show. And I'm sure you're working on something else. You'll have to come back on. Dara, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.